Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Dan Washburn. For much of the past year, a widespread protest movement has roiled Hong Kong. Initially, the demonstrations began when the territory's government passed an extradition law that left Hong Kong residents vulnerable to the justice system in mainland China. But even the withdrawal of the bill hasn't quelled the movement. Now it represents something far greater, the perilous future of autonomous Hong Kong itself. Is the one country, two systems framework governing Hong Kong's relationship with China still alive? What lies ahead in 2020? And looking further down the road, what might happen in 2047, when Beijing is scheduled to regain full control? The future of Hong Kong forms the basis of the new book, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Its author, Jeffrey Wasserstrom, is a professor of history at the University of California, Irvine. He places the recent events in Hong Kong in a broader historical context and considers whether the territory will ever return to the way things were before the protests began. Wasserstrom recently discussed his new book at Asia Society New York with New Yorker correspondent Jia Yang Fan and Chinophile editor Susan Jakes. It seems kind of like the whole world is on the brink. Why, why should we be paying attention to Hong Kong? Why are you paying attention to Hong Kong? Right so, in some ways, it was, it was much easier to say why pay attention to Hong Kong in the summer when some of the biggest marches in the history of the world uh, were taking place there. Some of the biggest marches, certainly by percentage of a political community, that were turning out on the streets. And it was extraordinary. And a movement was going on. It's been the lo- it was the longest sustained uh, social movement in any part of the People's Republic of China in 30 years. The umbrella movement before that had been the longest sustained movement in any part of the People's Republic of China in more than a quarter century. So Hong Kong keeps setting the bar there. But now, you know, between the time just a few weeks ago when people were saying, boy, your book is coming out at such a timely moment, (laughs) Hong Kong's on everybody's mind. The virus is on everybody's mind. But I think in some ways the virus underscores why the fight in Hong Kong is one that people globally should care about not just people who care about Hong Kong, not just people who care about China. Because I think um, what's crucial, and if we go back to SARS, which I know you covered and helped break um, the stories of, it was crucial that there was an independent uh, press in Hong Kong that was close to the mainland, had access to the mainland, and could report in ways that it was harder or impossible to do on the mainland. And that helped undermine cover-ups. If that goes away in Hong Kong, we're all in danger of not getting information that, want, that the mainland wants to suppress. So here we have a, um, a leader in Beijing who's obsessed with control. And there are all kinds of ways that Hong Kong has been a place that can move against cover-ups. So there have been moves against cover-ups of corruption within the party, and these might be things that people across China definitely care about, but the virus shows that this is also something that we far from China should care about as well. So Hong Kong's fight is really at a cutting edge, even as it disappears a little bit more from view right now. And just to add on to that, I mean, I think that's um, a a very important point, Jeff. Um, When I was in Hong Kong, Uh, last year in September covering the protests, something that came up quite frequently when I talked to mainlanders, and even when I talked to my my mother, who is a mainlander, was the seeming irrelevance of what was happening in this tiny island. I mean, um, 
for someone like my mother, I mean, of her, someone of her generation, um, she was largely annoyed. But there was this sense that what was happening over there was incredibly abstract, that, you know, that the values that the young protesters were fighting for, like democracy, like representational government, were things that didn't have very much to do with the everyday lives of 1.4 billion people on the mainland. What the, what the novel coronavirus brings to bear is, if, is, the, is um, literally the, the critical nature to their, to, literally to their lives of um, a free press and of transparency and of a government that, is, that cares more about the public welfare of its people rather than control, as Jeff mentioned. So even though it seems like we're moving, we're skipping so quickly from Hong Kong is the epicenter of crisis to Wuhan now as um, the ground zero for a different kind of crisis. They are, they are intimately related in the way that, in the sense that Wuhan concretizes the abstract mm -hmm. um, principles that, uh, um, that uh, young protesters um, uh, are, are, are fighting for. And that notion, you know, that the protesters in, um, in uh, Hong Kong were called Qing, right? Like the, these wasted youths, the sense that they are spoiled and that they, are, um, they, don't, they don't have um, anything better to do. And here we have, I mean, as many of you probably know, the death of um, Dr. Lee, one of the first whistleblowers um, of the virus in, uh, in Wuhan, and how his death feels so connected to almost every single person in, um, on the mainland, and that feels incredibly impactful. I was going to ask you about the, this very issue. I mean, there was this, you know, th when the protests were at their height this summer, one of the, uh, one of the things that the protesters did was sing... Uh, uh, do you hear the people sing from Les Miserables? And now people are singing that same song on the mainland. But I, w I wonder, do you, ha do you have any, either of you have any sense, like has anybody, have you seen anything on social media that suggests that people in the mainland are actually making this analogy themselves? Or do you think it's easier for us to see from the, from the outside? So that it has always been the, the sort of greatest fear of Beijing or biggest concern course, about yeah. protests contagion. in Hong Kong is that contagion <laughs> and would spread across the border. And all this vocabulary has I, become yeah. so new yeah. relevant. Yeah. Um, and, and it's percolated. Well, China File just pub published a very important piece by Xu Zhangrun, a critical intellectual within um, uh, the mainland, which was a searing criticism of trends uh, under Xi. But then Xu Zhangrun was also involved with a group letter that was just um, released. And in that group letter written by critical mainland intellectuals, they said we have five demands, which was, in that case, I think, an homage explain, explain. to Hong Kong. In Hong Kong now, the protests have been led, had, been, had the slogan, five demands, not one less. It began with one demand, an end to the extradition bill uh, that was being proposed that would have made it easy for people that Beijing wanted to prosecute over the border to be taken from Hong Kong over the border. This was seen as a threat to Hong Kong's independent uh, judiciary, its rule of law. And the protest began with the demand that that be withdrawn. And then as there was a great deal of police uh, brutality and 
some um, uh, militancy on the, the protester side and then more police brutality and then more militancy on the, on the protester side, another key demand became an independent investigation of, of police misconduct. That, I think, is the one of the demands that had the government addressed it could have ratcheted down the movement at various points because it has the broadest uh, support across Hong Kong is a feeling that the police are out of control. But they had three other demands as well, including universal suffrage for the chief executive. But the slogan then be, has become five demands, not one less. This time, we're going to stay on the streets until we clearly know that things are in place to protect us in the way that there's a critique of the umbrella movement of 2014 as ending too soon. So this is it. So the five demands, um, not one less, I think is, um, is a clear homage mm. when they do it. But with the, That's a very specific group of That's people, very though. specific and unusual. The singing, I mean, well, do you hear the people sing from Les Mis has had global reach. The uh, South Korean protests um, that brought down a corrupt official, the, the, the protesters were singing that then. Mm. And that actually connects to the other big Asia story in the news that's competing with Hong Kong and the virus, the film Parasite uh, winning. So the maker of the film Parasite, I've at least read, was blacklisted. Had, had South Korea continued to move in a kind of authoritarian direction, you might not have had that kind of film being made. So there are ways in which, and the, the song itself being sung globally in many different parts of the world. But there's one trick about uh, do you hear the people saying as it's sung in Hong Kong? I just heard about this. So Explain yeah, so the um, I learned this from Tammy Ho, who's an amazing Hong Kong uh, oh, no, poet and translator. And she yes, you read it on her book, and I read <laughs> about it on her blog. Um, so Tammy Ho is a uh, translator, a poet, and the head of Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong chapter of Penn, the writers um, group. And she wrote a blog post during the Umbrella Movement about the Cantonese translation of Do You Hear the People Sing. Um, it's wonderful. You have to be able to sing songs when they're in translation, so there's often freedom in how you, you alter the words. In Cantonese, it means something more like, have you spoken out yet? So rather than calling on the officials to listen, it's calling on the people to join in. So it would be very interesting if the version that's being sung is, how come you aren't listening? to us or listening to the whistleblower. Yeah. Oh, we should check that out. What about you? Have you... Uh, right. I think the, I mean, the, um, the virality of the song um, speaks to also this breakdown, I think, in this, and also, and the idea of the five um, demands that people are making makes me think about the grand bargain that the Communist Party you know, struck with uh, the people ever since reform and opening back in the 80s, this sense that if the government can guarantee prosperity, then the people, then the masses will remain um, assiduously apolitical. And I think what is happening both in Hong Kong and in Wuhan really interrogates that, that you know, that, that the notion that um, politics and um, social welfare can be so um, can be kept on these completely two dif uh, different tracks. What really struck me um, in about 
what's happening in Wuhan, and I think what so many um, writers and commentators and journalists like myself are trying to get at is that it's not that Beijing doesn't want to contain the virus. I mean, that in that sense, it is, com- I mean, in, the sincerity of the goal is absolutely there because it threatens Beijing's le- legitimacy when it fails um, to do so. But the, the political structure as it exists, the top-down regime, I mean, it's, autocracy is such that despite its concerted effort to control the spread of the virus, that structure is incapable, I feel, um, of delivering that ultimate goal. So I think that really brings us to the existential crisis of, um, of this political regime, because it's no longer that the government has some alternative motive and, you know, it's not trying to do this thing. It realizes that unless it can guarantee um, uh, the, the, the you know the, the the containment of the virus it you know its survival is threatened but it um, but the 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 um, dictatorial nature of government is such that um, guaranteeing something that is so fundamental to appeasing the masses like you know keeping people safe is not you know is something that it's not it, it might not be entirely capable of. And the instinct is always, I mean, part of the reason why we're in this in this situation to begin with is that the system is set up to prioritize public order mm-hmm. above everything else. And even as these efforts are taking place, there is also this concerted effort to, as Pamela Crossley, the great Qing historian, put it in an essay recently, to quarantine blame. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think those effort, you know, yeah, those things happening at the same time are probably so- not not aiding the uh, efficacy exactly. of the response. And there's something, there's something so ironic about the fact that stability maintenance has always been the rallying cry of the government. Uh, and it was, in a way, to... It was that very goal that um, uh, caused the first whistleblowers to be reprimanded in the first place. Like, they were, you know, they were spreading... They were... They were um, perceived to be spreading rumors and causing chaos. Um, and for the sake of stability, we need to mute them. And that was what caused, really, um, uh, I mean, that was led, that's what, that's what um, one of the reasons that led to the crisis getting so out of hand. Right. And also the bureaucrats who were overseeing the city were very focused on the orderly um, Performance of their annual right, the provincial meeting, is, right? Yeah, and so, you know, the, the instinct to to kind of push any kind of problem aside, and then also the fact that they were so busy. I mean, somebody did a wonderful, a Chinese journalist did a wonderful piece that had the schedule of all of the high-level officials in Wuhan for the days when this news was beginning to spread, and they were all really busy getting ready for their big annual political meeting, which we were just saying, you know, was was also the motive for suppressing information about SARS in 2003 because the outbreak was happening among medical workers in Beijing just as preparations were underway for the National People's Congress. But what I think the, um, the virus has underscored for Hong Kong, getting back to the sort of enduring issues with Hong Kong, have been that there is something called one country, two systems, is the structure. And the idea was that when Hong Kong became part of the People's Republic of China, it would benefit from becoming part of a big country on the rise. 
and but it would be protected from some it wouldn't lose the things that made it special so this is a year of the rat it's just begun um, and it's a very consequential year of the rat the last year of the rat was also a very consequential year 2008 and it was it had its disaster and the earthquake but it also had the Olympic Games and the Beijing Olympics I think was a time when one country being part of one country was a plus to a lot of people in Hong Kong. And there are even Hong Kongers now, young Hong Kongers, who are adamant participants in the protests, and even some of the ones who say, don't think of me as Chinese, think of me as a Hong Konger, who remember kind of, and they, they sometimes you know, are sort of musing on this, that they were really excited when the Olympic Games were coming to China. And they felt that that reflected well on them, that they could take pride in that. And Beijing, I think, played the Olympics beautifully in this sense because the big events were in Beijing that we focused on, but Hong Kong's a special place. The equestrian events were held there. So Hong Kong people got to kind of ride some of the crest of that. And in some ways, the two systems part seemed to be working out okay around 2008 in Hong Kong. In 2003, there was an effort to, build, to bring in a new sedition law Anti-sedition anti <laughs> law, right. And um, there were giant protests. And at that point, the government listened to the people sing. And they withdrew the bill. So around 2008, you had this thing, well, okay, two systems seem to be working. That was right after SARS, actually. Right after so they SARS. Were kind of, they had been they kind had of burned too. for their yeah. management. of. So they had, SARS. like, some protection in this way. So you had that, but now, being part of one country, if you're if your official doesn't listen to local um, experts or to local concerns, but listens to Beijing about how to handle um, the virus, then being part of one country is a, real, is a real downside. And the two systems part doesn't really seem to be working. So I think the contrast between these two years of the rat is pretty dramatic. I have a question about this. This summer, right at the height of the protests, right when the, uh, the protesters were taking over the airport, um, two pro-democracy legislators from Hong Kong, one of whom is in the legal functional constituency, he's a lawyer, but he's pro-democracy, Dennis Kwok, and um, the other one was Alvin Jung, came, came here to speak. And I asked them if they thought that part of what was motivating the, pro the protesters in Hong Kong had anything to do with the growing authoritarianism on the other side of the, the border. You know, Xi Jinping getting rid of his term limits, Xinjiang censorship. And they both said, no, it's not about that at all. Like, no, do you, do you, what do you guys think about that? I was a little surprised. But they said, no, it's really much more focused on the local, on local issues and on the way that, that the central government is manifesting itself in Hong Kong. I think, I think there's certainly an awareness of what's going on on the mainland and a concern. And it's growing. I mean, now they're starting to be solid. There's discussion. I mean, I don't understand how to even... Yeah, no, I, I would, I would yeah. disagree there. Though I do, I mean, yeah, I, I think there must be some. I mean, I, I think it's, it's hard to to um, imagine, it, it, it's hard to think that there is not a, a subconscious level even, I mean, this um, uh, anxiety about what's going on on the, um, on the mainland. But I do think that, um, and as, you know, Vigil described so well, Hong Kong is a very unique place. And when I can imagine how, if you're living there, there, um, over the past uh, couple decades, 
it's become this perfect storm of economic, social, and political anxieties. And there is a sense of a unique, um, and you might, as some, as an inhabitant, think, I, you know, I'm more concerned about the shape of my life than necessarily, you know, the grand repercussions of what's going on in uh, mainland affecting um, affecting me in the next five, you know, ten years. I think the anxieties in Hong Kong have become so acute, and the fear of the way that um, uh, lives on the ground are being affected in this very concrete way that 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 might make um, uh, Hong Kongers believe, you know. I'm not looking so far down the line about um, uh, mainland's effect on me. It's, you know, today, right now, I have real fears about, um, uh, what, about, about, about the quality of my life. In, but I can know. imagine them a bit, you don't want to have your story always reduced to something else. And we, we saw a similar thing. There's no question that the Tsai Ing-wen victory in Taiwan was aided by the Hong Kong protests and the crackdown, but I can see why, why there were people in Taiwan who said, don't make that the story because what we're doing has its own integrity. So I can see, you know, it's not that it's, a, it's not an either or. Um, and and they're, so, they're so entwined. I, I've also had people ask, so why aren't the Hong Kong protests more about economic inequality? Hong Kong is so incredibly economically unequal why is it always focusing I mean, the on the government politics? thinks that that's part of what well, the large part of what's the government the thinks it's a, and that's the kind of excuse but but it's all you can't just neatly disentangle that mm -hmm. the um the powers that be in hong kong are seen as largely being tycoons who are in league with beijing and there's have come to terms with a way to operate so Political frustration links up with economic frustration. There was hope. There was some hope about Carrie Lam because finally she was a chief executive who wasn't out of that kind of group. But clearly, she ended up doing the exact same things. We're going to take a short break and talk about some upcoming live webcasts at AsiaSociety.org. On March 9th, our ongoing coverage of the coronavirus continues a talk with economist Daniel Rosen about the economic costs of the crisis. The following day, we consider the effect of the trade war between the U.S. and China on global arts and culture. And on March 12th, journalist Dexter Roberts will speak about his new book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. To learn more about these events and find out how you can watch, please visit asiasociety.org live. And now, let's get back to Jeffrey Wasserstrom, Jia Young Fan, and Susan Jakes. How do you see the coronavirus outbreak affecting these dynamics? Or do you have any thoughts about that? Or where, where would you be looking to try to assess that? I think um, it's not a coincidence, you know, we were talking about this before the talk, how the, the sackings that came in today, the top official, I mean, the top official, uh, official in Hubei, have, two of them have been sacked, and uh, Zhang Xiaoming um, in the uh, in the Macau and Hong Kong office, um, uh, also another, you know, two top officials have also been sacked. I think the coronavirus makes me think about um, uh, Hong Kong in the sense of how does Beijing continue to send 
political signals that will be correctly and effectively interpreted in different in these in disparate regions of China. I think about the failure of Hubei and the failure of Hong Kong being, in addition to many other things, as one in which Carrie Lam and the mayor of uh, Wuhan and the top officials of um, Hubei massively um, uh, being derelict in their duty to really assess the needs and wants of their people and and not prioritizing that, but instead feeling like they are absolutely obliged to make sure that they are um, following the dictates of uh, of of Beijing a hundred percent. And I think that actually is not. I mean, that is not to uh, Xi Jinping's benefit because if he doesn't have capable mid-level officials at in Hubei, in Hong Kong, in all the other provinces in China who can interpret a signal from Zhongnanhai and apply it um, in an effective way to the de- um, uh, and meet the demands of its um, people, then you will you, then you will constantly be in danger of possible uprisings and revolts. Um, and I think of, you know, Carrie Lam, and as you, you know, delineate so well um, in your book, Jeff, being a, a very um, a very potent example of that. She was, you know, she, she is a hyper-competent yes woman, but she ultimately was not able to balance between what, you know, her, what her constituents needed and also following you know, the orders of Beijing. That was something that she, you know, epically failed to do. Yeah. It's a longstanding pattern, though. I mean, I was realizing as I read your book that so, that all of these movements that you describe, um, beginning with Article 23, um, were, they're all responsive. I mean, it's not like they're, um, it's not about advancing, at least initially, about advancing an affirmative vision. It's about, it's about resisting Protecting. encroachment, and there's this, the anti-sedition law, and then you know the the um, the genesis of the students who would later become the umbrella movement was this move to rewrite the textbooks mm-hmm. that middle school kids were learning, and then the middle school students organized themselves. So it just, I guess, I wonder how you, uh, and then this extradition bill, which right. we still don't, I don't think, perfectly understand the dynamics of how that was proposed and why and why and why it wasn't withdrawn sooner when it seems like it could have avoided this big calamity. I just so I wonder how you see the the just this whole dynamic of of this constant reaching into Hong Kong in ways that seem to so aggravate sentiment there. Is it just that Beijing feels like it can afford to do that or is it about some form of paranoia or like what is what's causing it? So going back, sort of putting on my historian hat and I I do. I learned so much from journalists that especially the ones who seem to be asking the same kinds of questions. And sometimes they do more they go into you had Mara Fistendahl here recently, and I was thinking her book reads more like a historian's book in some ways and mine reads more like a journalist. But um, but putting on my historian's hat 
going at least back to 1996. Jeff I'll is go also back. a historian of social movements. In China. <laughs> yeah, I'll go back to 1841 if you want. But, um, for now, 1996. In the lead up to the handover, there was all sort of Hong Kong has continually made fools of forecasters, but there were sort of two kinds of forecasts that were both wrong. And one was that right after um, the handover, all vestiges of free, free press would be gone. There would be no elections for legislators. It was just going to kind of instantly become like another mainland city. And that clearly just, just didn't happen. The other forecast, a more hopeful one that was also wrong, was that when Hong Kong, with its more liberal, um, liberal ways, was, became part of the Chinese body politic, its ways would permeate over the border, and the press would become freer, and Chinese cities would become more like Hong Kong. I mean, both, there were elements of both that were right. I mean, malls in Shanghai became a lot more like malls in, Hang in Hong Kong. The eating scene in Chinese cities, the way to have fun, to make money, spend money, became more like Hong Kong. And in some ways, there, was a, there were some things that creep, crept over the border the other way. But on the whole, there was a sense, there was a kind of sense of relief, like, look, um, you can still have the South China Morning Post making fun of the authorities. You still have some space. In English. And then at certain <laughs> points, and even you had Apple Daily, you know, you had things that you couldn't have. So at a certain point, it becomes, well, you know, it was slow, maybe a very, very slow process of reigning Hong Kong in. But then China changed. It became more, uh, the Communist Party became more self-confident. It became more powerful in the world. Um, I quote, Margaret Thatcher was saying in 1990, when asked if she was concerned about the fact that a British city was gonna go into the, um, go into the hands of a, of a government that had just recently carried out the massacre, she said, but look, Deng Xiaoping is still committed to economic reform. Economic reform will ineluctably lead to um, some form of liberalization, and anyway, the Chinese Communist Party will want to be seen in the forum of the world as keeping its word. Mm. And you know, up to a certain extent, until about 2008, or certainly until they got into WTO, they were very important to be seen as in the forum of the world. Now, um, China, the forum of the world is just messed up. There isn't as clear a thing, and China is part of what's setting the agenda in the forum of the world. And it's in a strong position where it doesn't have to be as concerned with that. So a variety of things have changed. But then there's also the process at certain points, um, the authorities, like with Article 23 and even more recently, more times, just kind of overestimates what they can get away with, with turning the screws, assuming that there won't really be a cost. And there's a great... Um, the, way of thinking about it that Kenny Leung, a, um, a Hong Kong writer, um, wrote about in an, in an article for Apple Daily, I think, that was translated in China Heritage, uh, where she talked about the frog in the pot of boiling water. Mm -hmm. If the temperatures raise slowly enough, the frog will simply die. But if something happens that sort of alerts the frog that the temperature is going up quickly, then the frog will jump out, or in this case, protests will break out. So the question is, why at certain moments do they feel that they can ratchet up the temperature quickly, rather than just doing it really slowly? And those have been the moments that have triggered the protests. Mm -hmm. I think there's also, I mean, Beijing um, is incredibly pragmatic, and 
it um, during 97, I mean, even in its alliance with the tycoons, really thought that if we win the loyalty of the tycoons, the masses will follow. So he really pursued this strategy of, well, if economically and politically we have, um, you know, we're able to, um, we're, we're, we're able to take um, Hong Kong with us, uh, then everything else um, will, you know, will follow quite smoothly. I think what it underestimates is the cultural identity that is birthed in an environment that has economic um, freedom and some um, uh, you know, political liberties. I think Beijing has always been very, I think, unable to understand, I mean, truly, I mean, in its accusations, both, I think, actually in Wuhan and in, um, in Hong Kong of, of, um, of hostile for, uh, foreign, uh, foreign forces that are actually doing kind of, that, 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 that are um, uh, riling people up. This sense of, you know, there isn't, why would you want, like, why would you want to protest? Like, why would you want to get yourself into trouble? I mean, if, it, if there's no immediate economic gain, that doesn't make sense. Beijing, I think, fundamentally is really incapable of imagining this organic uprising out of cultural identity rather than, you know, um, uh, economic incentives. And in its estimation of how Hong Kong would transform after the handover, it made some very prudent calculations, but it did not really think through about this this new generation of people who have um, grown accustomed to certain pillars of um, uh, a liberal democratic society and how unwilling it might be to give that up, even, um, even with a you know, relative amount of economic prosperity. And that people sometimes do things that are against their economic interests, you know, protesters take these chances, you know, the, one of the ways that protesters get punished is they get banned from going to the mainland, which means if you're a young Hong Kong person who wants to work for an international company, the international company in Hong Kong wants to hire somebody who's going to help them get into Beijing. So even companies that are banned from, from China, say Facebook, in their Hong Kong office, they want somebody who can be a kind of intermediary. So, yeah, I, I wrote a partly joking piece about would Mark Zuckerberg hire Joshua Wong <laughs> after the umbrella movement? Because Joshua Wong is really savvy with social media. He's a globally known Mark. Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't want to touch him because he <laughs> wants to have somebody who can move between there. But I would say just um, my favorite piece of Jia Young's is the profile of Denise Ho, um, the Cantonese pop singer who has completely worked against her own economic interest by taking stands that first got her banned from the mainland. Um, when she, um, she, well, first she came out um, as gay and was very public on LGBTQ issues. Uh, that didn't get her banned from the mainland where she would tour, a lot of her money would come from touring in the mainland or downloads from the mainland. But when tear gas was used against protesters in 2014, she decided, you know, she was going to speak out about the umbrella movement. That got her music banned from, um, from the mainland. So that was her making a choice about economic um, things. But then, um, just to show that the signals that Beijing sometimes get is that economics rule all, mm -hmm. um, she was Lancome L'Oreal's face across East Asia for the products. 
and Lancome L'Oreal was going to launch a new thing in the mainland, and the mainland said, you drop her, or um, you don't get to do this. And they dropped her, which would reinforce Beijing's view that bottom line is what people pay attention to. It's and just there are so many stories like there are so many like that. So they get reinforced periodically that it is all about economics by in part their interactions with the West. Yeah. So we have something to answer for. So here what too. It, I mean, is there any force mitigating against a, a view on the central government's part that they can just afford to let Hong Kong kind of wither on the vine and kind of slide into some sort of, you know, new normal of street protests and a little bit of violence and economic decline and irrelevance. I mean, I know that would hurt all of us <laughs> profoundly, but we're, you know, liberal New Yorkers, of course, we love, New- <laughs> love Hong Kong. <laughs> They're not a New Yorker anymore, but... Um, uh, no, I you think... You know, I mean, are, I mean do we project the- too much of our own... Uh, our own views and our own emotions onto assessing the kind of trajectory of this story? There was um, uh, Ian, a good Ian Johnson piece that was a little bit controversial, actually, of trying mm-hmm. to evaluate the status of Hong Kong. And I think he says something that piqued some people. He said that it was a, a city in decline, and many Hong Kongers mm-hmm. felt very strongly that, um, you know, that actually the city is experiencing this flourishing. And I think you can make an argument for both those adjectives in a way. Um, I wrote a piece um, at the end of last year in which I talk about, you know, the city kind of awakening to itself, you know, being really newly mm-hmm. self-conscious um, about its identity, which it didn't used to think it had full, full ownership of. But economically speaking, you know, we look at Hong Kong's status as a global financial hub. I mean, it's how critical um, it was as really the only kind of... Um, backdoor into China in the um, in the 80s and 90s and now um, how it is still very you know very important it has a, 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 a rule of law and it had it still has things that cities like Shenzhen and Shanghai doesn't quite have but it is competing in some ways mm-hmm. with these newly emergent um, uh, financially powerful um, Chinese cities. And in that respect, um, uh, it, it can be regarded as a city that's less um, important than it once was. So I do I mean, so um, I think from Beijing's perspective, it wants, it probably, um, Beijing's best case scenario is that given the great influx of mainlanders into Hong Kong, mm-hmm. you know, um, over the years, that that sense of Hong Kong identity, if not weakened, will at least be diluted. Mm-hmm. And if you have, um, if Hong Kong natives, you know, are marrying mainlanders, if then their children are speaking, you know, Cantonese and um, Mandarin as their household language, that this, the, it's willful, it's willful kind of um, resistance to the to Beijing and to mainland will um, will will you know will gradually soften you know over time. I think there is that. And maybe but more so people far, will the leave. opposite is yeah. happening, yeah. right? I mean, I remember I got to Hong Kong in July, June of two thousand, so three years mm-hmm. after the handover, at the height of the Asian economic crisis financial crisis. And, you know, the city was a real mess. All these people were in negative equity on their homes. They were paying more, you know, more on their mortgages than their homes were worth. And 
I was sent out my very first week to do a kind of three years past the handover story. And I remember talking with um, the social scientist who, who has been doing for years these mass surveys of how Hong Kong people think about their place in the world and giving them choices of, you know, I'm Chinese, I'm, mm -hmm. chi I'm a Chinese who lives in Hong Kong, I'm a Hong Kong Chinese person, I'm a Hong I forget what each of the categories are, but there has been this enormous shift even over the, that, what is that, 20 years ago, 20-year <laughs> period um, of particularly young people just identifying not as Chinese anymore, but just as Hong Kong people. And I know at least of a handful of mainland friends who live in Hong Kong who are now kind of raising their children as Hong Kong. Right. Or, particularly given what's happening on the mainland, but there may be a special. But I think that here. generation is, um, I mean, many of the young protesters that I interviewed uh, last September, they, they very much, um, you do have to generate this generational rift where they're really reacting, um, where they are, you know, much better educated than their parents, some of whom are, you know, first generation mainland um, immigrants, and feel like they are, um, they have a, they have a sophisticate, sophisticated globalized education, and uh, uh, they are really taking control of their Hong Kong identity, um, especially, you know, growing up still with so many of the um, uh, advantages of, you know, a, a, a liberal semi-democratic society. But what, what was striking to me was that I would conduct my interviews with them in both Mandarin and English. They would always want to, they would insist on wanting to speak mainly um, English, I think as much out of, um, uh, you know, a sign of political protest um, as anything else. But because they, I mean, uh, you know, these are, these are kids who were born in around 97, they attended primary schools that taught them uh, Mandarin. So they were very fluent in Mandarin and some of them, you know, love listening to Taiwanese songs. And I think mm. there, there is, as um, uh, mainland pop culture becomes increasingly sophisticated, there is also some um, uh, cross-pollination. I wonder when they grow up, if they're like the shape of their children's Hong Kong identity. I mean, if um, uh, the government still insists on Mandarin education and as um, mainland it grows, it sheds its reputation of just being the country bumpkin cousin and it becomes, you know, more sophisticated um, uh, and sleek, at least um, uh, uh, culturally. Um, I. I wonder if um, the children of today's Hong Kong millennials will feel as kind of instinctively protective of their Hong Kong identity as their parents. I just, I don't know. I think that's an open question. We also just, um, again, another way in which China has been changing is the government is more insistent upon there being a single version of Chineseness. And I think it's almost like a, a problem of vocabulary that, and this is something I haven't quite figured out how you can do it, but there is, there's a project now that goes along with Chineseness coming out of Beijing, and you see it with, I mean, the Confucius Institutes were one, and it used to be you could say like, well, I'm the kind of, I'm, I'm the kind of Chinese person who values traditional China, you know, I, I value Confucian values rather than uh, Communist Party values, but now you're supposed to, it's an all or nothing package. Mm -hmm. There isn't the space for this, and it's very hard to talk about but I'll talk about it anyway, maybe especially in New York. 
Um, so I don't usually bring this in, but I mean, I'm of Jewish heritage. It's been very easy in the United States for quite a while to say, I'm Jewish but anti-Zionist. Plenty of people will say that. Even though there were points when Israel wanted to be the representative of, of Judaism. But that didn't work. To some extent, there's been a going along with, China's, uh, with the Chinese Communist Party's view of defining what Chineseness is. And so if you don't have the option, I mean, you, could, you used to say have the option, maybe you could say, I'm, Chinese, I'm a Chinese anti-communist, but it doesn't really work because the Chinese Communist Party now is claiming to stand for more things like that. Mm. So in a way, what option do you have mm. if you don't buy into this project? So, um, but the other thing that I think is very important is you can be a Hong Konger without being ethnically Chinese. And you can't be Chinese without, in, in the People's Republic of China. You can't be a full citizen of that. So there are significant people, including one of our mutual close friends, Zohar Abdul Karim, who used to edit uh, Time Asia until he retired. And he wrote a beautiful essay on the Hong Kong dream as opposed to the China dream. And he talked about being somebody who has had familial ties to Hong Kong from his grandfather or his great-grandfather's time, even though he doesn't have any, quote-unquote, Chinese blood. And he speaks Cantonese, but he doesn't recognize Chinese characters, I think he was saying. But he, and he speaks English, and he speaks Cantonese, so he's a Hong Konger. And he can be accepted by, as Hong Kongers. Not that there aren't you know, prejudices within Hong Kong, but it's, it's possible to feel that way. Um, and there are... There are people descended from British colonizers, but there are also people with ties to Europe or ties to Baghdad, and they can claim to be a Hong Konger. So it's an identity that opens up possibilities. Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can listen to other episodes of the Asia In-Depth podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Check out our show page at asiasociety.org podcast, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Next week, we bring you a conversation between two celebrated authors, Salman Rushdie and Tashani Doshi, whose new book is called Small Days and Nights. Here's a sneak peek. Being in India these last 10 years and going with my body as a woman navigating through this space and feeling really a kind of fury and, and anger at the fact that there's just so much violence, for one, um, that we have to navigate and and just so much repression and so many things that you're trying to, um, to, you know, not be bombarded and squashed down by. And at the same time, I would say that the story of women in India is such a one for rejoicing because it's just there's so much happening and so much that Indian women are doing. So it's this weird juxtaposition of on one level, these horrible statistics and newspaper articles, which just keep coming, and at the other end, um, the, the sort of strong resilience. I'm Dan Washburn. See you next time. <laughs>